This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This episode and in the next episode, we are discussing the life and the work of a Chicano poet from New Mexico here in the United States. His personal story is dramatic and it's inspirational. Um, his body of work stands with some of the best in the American canon. But perhaps more importantly than both of those things, his legacy extends through the work he has done, empowering and uh, giving hope to overlooked and disenfranchised young men and women in his home region, the southwest region of the United States, where he still spends most of his time uh, inspiring students to take charge of their lives and take charge of their future by teaching them to read. And I am talking about Jimmy Santiago Baca. Yes. Jimmy Baca's personal journey started in prison. But before we get there, let's start with this question. What is Chicano or Chicana Chicano literature? And where is New Mexico? Because in order to understand the world of Jimmy Santiago Baca, we need to start with the little geography and history. After that, we'll introduce his incredible biography. So incredible, in fact, his prison memoir has been turned into a major motion picture, A Place to Stand. You can watch it on Netflix. And the movie, Bound by Honor, although it's not you know, strictly autobiographical, was written by Baca, and it is, it is, in large part, based on his personal story. A story that begins and ends in the American Southwest. So let's start by exploring the uniqueness of this very unique region. Sure. Um, so Obaca is a native of New Mexico, which is one of the six American states that comprise the American Southwest, and it's between Texas and Arizona. And uh, many of us have seen it portrayed in movies. It's um, characterized by uh, iconic landscapes and deserts. I mean, think of the Grand Canyon, the Mojave Desert. Think of the you know the visually stunning plateaus and mesas. Uh, think of the movie Tombstone. <laughs> 
you know, the Lone Ranger, Cowboys and Aliens, the Terminator. I mean, go on. <laughs> I know. It, it contains various mountain ranges like the Rocky Mountains and the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And because of its rich Native American heritage, if you travel there, you can visit uh, cliff dwellings and see petroglyphs that date back a thousand years or more. Um, these are things that don't exist in other parts of the United States. It's incredibly unique and really unlike any other place really on planet Earth. You know, the United States of America, I mean, the name really indicates how diverse America is, and it always has been. I mean, Americans, by definition, do not share a common culture like you see in other parts of the world. We don't have a common food, a common music, a common religion. We don't even have a common language. The United States is a collection of differences, and nowhere is this more evident than the American Southwest. I mean, there's no way I could make a complete list. I tried, but I had to quit. (laughs) The different languages and people groups that call this region home. You know, exactly. Uh, First of all, just in terms of its colonization, the Southwest uh, is the oldest region in America, which is something that a lot of people don't know. Thirteen years before the Pilgrims settled in Plymouth, Santa Fe was established by the Spanish Empire. Santa Fe is the oldest capital city in America, and that distinction predates even the Spanish colonizers, and archaeologists have found uh, Pueblo City remains that date back to 1050 A.D., and that's even before I graduated from high school. (laughs) You know, when the Spanish first attempted to colonize New Mexico in the 1600s, there were over 100,000 inhabitants already living in that area, Um, and they encountered 70 native towns speaking nine different indigenous languages. You know, people don't really think about that many people living in the Americas at that time. Yes, in in the Southwest. And, you know... Uh, that's really something important to think about. That's roughly the size of Madrid, Spain during the same time period. You know, the story of what happened between uh, the Spanish and native peoples and the Spanish colonists is its own story. And, 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 you know, it entails a lot of violence and warfare. But ultimately, what is now the southwest region of the United States became a colony of Spain. Then it was a part of Mexico when Mexico became an independent nation from Spain in 1821. But then in 1846, the same area became part of the United States. Now, I want you to think about what that means for the thousands of people living in this region. Uh, this is an incredible amount of change. In 1821, you would have been a citizen of a Spanish colony. Then you become part of an independent Mexico, and then by 1846, you are part of a U.S. territory, and then now you are part of the state of New Mexico in the United States. So you've gone through three passports, figuratively. (laughs) Right. You know, this is a lot of political change for thousands of people uh, who never one time moved or left their own farms. Um, This is also a lot of outsiders moving in who do not share a similar cultural background and who are redefining the rules of ownership over a space that they claim to have acquired, but really already has people on it. And when the New Mexico territory became a state of the United States in 1912, the 300,000 people who lived there became Americans. But these people were not of the same historical or cultural origins as those in the Eastern colonies. Many of them didn't even speak the same language as those in the Eastern states. New Mexico was one of the most racially diverse states in the United States, and 
really born out of this diversity is the people uh, who today identify as Chicano Chicano people. Um, they have Mexican roots for sure, but the land consisted of many different tribal peoples. Chicano people are, are, are all of this together. I mean, it's a beautiful mixed heritage created out of um, the lived experience of the people who lived through all of those turbulent transitions. And I mean, the heritage of the Chicano people predates both colonial empires. And, and think about this. New Mexico has been colonized twice, first by the Spanish and then by the Americans. Chicano people are Mexican-American, yes, but that's part of the story, not all of it. Most are not immigrants by any definition of the term. Over uh, 70% of the people who identify as Chicano were born in the United States, and their ancestors have always lived in the United States, even before there was anything called the United States. And In fact, uh, many can trace their heritage thousands of years before uh, Europeans knew about this place that today that we would call New Mexico. That's a long history. Well, it is, and that might be something that comes a surprise to many people. I mean, any, even many Americans. Uh, and that's why Baca's first book is titled Immigrants in Our Own Land. It's a title that emerges with incredible success because it's going to speak to his personal experience as a prisoner but he relates it very realistically and very metaphorically and symbolically to his experience as a Chicano. Well, it's, it's unique history it has often been overlooked or maybe even misrepresented. And as a result, um, for a very long time, much of America has been really ignorant of the um, unaddressed social economic needs in the region. Um, in fact, it really wasn't until the Chicana Chicano movement in the late 1960s and 1970s, that the um, social and political and racial and economic issues of the region were addressed at all. The uh, Chicana Chicano movement really parallels the civil rights movement in the southern region of the United States. And Baca was not a part of this movement. He would come later on, but his life is a result of um, the challenges their leaders were addressing by the 1970s, um, even though Mex Mexican-Americans were entering the labor market in increasingly large numbers, they were being left behind in their ability to really pursue the American dream, you know, to use an American expression. And, and this is what I mean by that. They were in large part uh, prohibited from financial progress and social mobility due to uh, some large-scale social discrimination, very much like what was happening in the American South. And, but interestingly enough, the illiteracy among the Mexican-American population was and is disproportionately higher than any other group of Americans. And young Mexican-American children were uh, working, picking fruit instead of attending school. And pesticides were killing workers in large numbers. And Mexican-Americans were not being paid equally to other Americans. And up to this point, by and large, they had remained silent. And, you know, activists uh, like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and, and the uh, boxer Corky Gonzalez, those are um, three famous names out of many uh, who rose up to really work to change this reality. And there were strikes and marches and boycotts and many other elements to the Chicana, Chicano movement. And, you know, there is a lot to it, but significant change did occur. Uh, there was legislative and legal changes like higher wages for the Chicano farm community. But the movement ignited cultural changes uh, in the arts. The uh, Chicana, Chicano movement heightened public consciousness outside of the Mexican community. And it heightened pride 
in one's own heritage within the community. And so Jimmy Baca was born January 2nd, 1952 in Santa Fe, New Mexico, into these circumstances. You know, his birth predates the movement, but his circumstances were exactly those that provoked the Chicano-Chicano movement. Um, in fact, New Mexico, which is Baca's home state, has the lowest literacy rate in the entire United States currently. Wow. Uh, Jimmy Baca then is an American-born Chicano with deep roots in his home state. Uh, so you can see, just like you talked about, he's this very culturally rich community. He was born trilingual, uh, speaking Spanish and Tiwa and English, but at the same time was raised in this reality of poverty, racial division. I mean, his grandfather on his mother's side was a Spanish comanchero. That means he's a Spanish trader, traded with indigenous people. His father, Demacho Baca, uh, as many Chicanos uh, are, was mixed race, uh, Apache and Yaqui, as well as Mexican. Uh, but what's notable is that neither his mother nor his father graduated from high school. His mother became pregnant as a teenager. Uh, they both dropped out of school. They were married by the time, you know, most people in middle class America are, you know, learning to drive a car. And this was in no way unusual. By the time Jimmy was two, you know, his family unit, for obvious reasons that we could all guess at, had completely collapsed. I mean, his father had become an abusive alcoholic. He couldn't keep a job. He couldn't provide for his family. His mother, understandably, ran away from the abusive marriage. But when she did that, she also abandoned her children uh, because of discrimination on the part of her the man that she ran away with. So Jimmy is trapped in a life where he would find himself abandoned and in an orphanage by age seven. Uh, Baca would be behind bars and a ward of the state by age 13. In his memoir, A Place to Stand, you know, Baca develops for his readers a very clear picture of how all these circumstances led him to be living first as an unsupervised 13-year-old on the streets of Albuquerque, New Mexico, then alone in California, then back to the Southwest with a friend and a girlfriend. You know, he was on his own for seven years. Uh, but during those seven years, he is arrested for all kinds of petty crimes. Some of them he did. Some of them he didn't do. Some of them are actually pretty serious. Most of them petty. He taught himself how to be a plumber, but he didn't have a license. He was trying to live on his own, but this involved fighting and drugs. This was just part of the landscape, um, not just for gang members or professional criminals, but anybody who were caught in these circumstances of, of not being able to get you know, a professional degree or, or any kind of formal employment. I mean, the story is long. There's much that needs to be said about uh, the criminal justice system, how it works. But at the end of the day... Young Jimmy and friends are present at a location where a drug bust occurs. He gets swept up with everybody else into the system. There's no advocate for him. A judge is facing re-election. And Baca is given the harshest sentence available to the judge at the time. Five to ten years with five flat, meaning no parole possible, and a maximum security prison. Baca will arrive, or did arrive, at the Arizona State Penitentiary in Florence, Arizona at the age of 20. Angry, ashamed, alone, and functionally illiterate. 
because his charges were drug-related, he's not eligible for a reduction of his own sentence, not even for good behavior. To use Jimmy's own words, he was in the dark. The story of how this young man has become a part of that select group of prison writers that stand out in history is extraordinary. Most people don't realize it, uh, but some of the greatest writers, really, of the English language wrote their pieces, their, their most important pieces from prison. We know about and we think about Malcolm X and his autobiography because it's kind of a standard bear in the genre. But, you know, Dr. King, we featured him on his letter from Birmingham Jail. Henry David Thoreau, we featured him from jail. But more importantly than the works that came out of America, think on the global scale, the experiences of prison writers like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Nelson Mandela, Oscar Wilde, John Bunyan, Miguel Cervantes, Machiavelli, Mahandas Gatney, the Apostle Paul of the Bible. I mean, that is a really impressive list. Uh, but Baca, he becomes a part of this. And, and this reality, he goes from being tattered to successful. And it's really an extraordinary journey. It is uh, absolutely extraordinary. And, and to his credit, uh, he described it like this. And, and I think it's a very accurate description of what he did. And I quote, I gave birth to myself. Uh, you know, this is an amazing thing to say, but an even more amazing thing to do, because it means exactly that. He had to create himself from nothing. He had to nourish himself, sustain himself, all in the most difficult environment imaginable. I mean, who can do this? You know, only really an extraordinary person. And, um, and you know, as of March 2023, there were 6,364 places of incarceration in the United States of America, costing American taxpayers over $80 billion a year. Um, there are over 2 million men and women being held in the system. I mean, it's incredibly large. It involves lots of people and lots of money. It's an industry. Uh, the prison system, for various reasons, uh, it's not nor has it ever been on its best day, really a place of redemption. But the maximum security state prison in Florence, Arizona, back then wasn't even designed to be. Historically in America, actually prior to the American Revolution, imprisonment was not widely used as a punishment. It was more often a place to hold prisoners of war um, who would be traded back. Punishments, like for people committing crimes in society, those punishments were public spectacles. I mean, we had public executions, public whippings, the stocks, branding, castration. I mean, those kind of Fun things. Stuff. Yeah. None of those things are good, no. really. Uh, they are all forms of torture, no doubt. But, but what I want to point out is that they were open to the public. And this is an important distinction. When the prison system was created, it institutionalized isolation and secrecy. And these are weapons that are arguably far worse than any public form of uh, punishment. The walls of a prison are not only designed to keep prisoners in, but also serve to keep the prying eyes of the public out. And there is no really uh, no real accountability in a place of secrecy. And the atrocities Jimmy Baca talks about in his work are all things enabled by this culture of isolation and secrecy. And he wasn't really uh, the first person to talk about this. I mean, prison author Jim Tilly in 1928, and think about this, 1928, he put it this way. I'd rather read one page by a man who had been born in hell than all of Dante. And he was talking about prison. Uh, Jack London, a more famous writer, wrote about his experiences in the prison system in two essays in 1907. 
I mean, in his essays, he argued how prisons not only brutalized prisoners, but transformed them. And he was talking about himself into an instrument of terror and class oppression. He said this, I saw with my own eyes there in that prison things unbelievable and monstrous. He would later claim in his novel, The Iron Heel, that a prison is the ultimate expression of the totalitarian state. So when we talk about the purpose of prisons, you know, this is not a new conversation. Look how many years uh, that just spanned. It's been a great debate. Are prisons places of punishment or are they places of reform? Uh, that is the uh, unanswerable question. And really, we're not debating the prisons, but that's the background for what we're getting to. And But I did want to say uh, the first dedicated prison in the United States was built in Philadelphia in 1829. And it was founded on the principle of reform, uh, reform through isolation and uh, religious reflection. And obviously, uh, their methods did not work, <laughs> not even a little bit. But even as such, the reform model did not take off in the United States. And, you know, the reasons were political and economic and many having to do with special interests. But even if that hadn't been the case, the greater question has emerged is, is there such a thing as a humane prison? By definition, is such a thing possible? Well, we're asking that question because uh, Baca certainly did not experience one, but he did dream of one, and the poem we're going to read about was his vision of the perfect prison. It's interesting in large part because he wrote it while incarcerated. Jimmy Baca's breakout work, Immigrants in Our Own Land, expresses much about his experiences in the prison system. He starts with the title poem, expressing how it feels to arrive. And he does this through this powerful metaphor of an immigrant. A person shows up to a prison. He's an immigrant in a new land. He's arriving. There's a new culture, a new place where he is completely vulnerable. He extends the metaphor of an immigrant for the entire poem. This is called a conceit, an extended metaphor. We've talked about it before when we read Langston Hughes' poem, Mother to Son, when she, you know he was using the voice of a mother and comparing life to a staircase. But in Baca's poem, it's ironic because he compares becoming an inmate to being an immigrant in your own land because that's how many Chicanos experience America. And they're not even in prison. He's talking about their own community. So it plays on this double level. The subtext of the title creates the connection between these two circumstances as he sees as connected. Chicanos in their own land are marginalized by the language barrier, the cultural barrier, the economic barrier, the educational barrier. But taking that experience of being outside the culture in your own land and then applying it to becoming an inmate in a prison is a very interesting way of thinking about prisoners. We are taking a group of marginalized people and we're marginalizing them all over again. Uh, Gary, you've talked about this before, uh, downward assimilation. When Baca talks about that ride from the jail to the prison, he talks about the shame, how he feels, uh, how he experienced it. He talks about being looked at by people in gas stations on the roadside and they look at him as if he's a person he's or not a person with no feelings, no soul, no humanity. And he knew that wasn't who he was on his way in. But what would he be on his way out? Baca, in an interview after interview, he never argues that there are uh, inmates in prison that don't fit that soulless description. 
In fact, in the poem itself, he suggests that there are people like that in there. However, he challenges us to be careful about passing judgment on everyone. He challenges us to see if perhaps what prisons might be are factories devoted to the industrialization that specializes in the production of criminals. In Baca's poem, the inmates enter a penitentiary as an immigrant, many of them with dreams. This is what he says in the poem, with dreams in our hearts, looking for better days ahead. So let's read the poem. You know, generally, I would encourage you to read the entire poem and then go back and reread it closely. And the second time, you would want to break it up into different segments and think about the different thoughts and the ideas and the different pictures. I still encourage you to do that. You can find this poem on our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com, and read it in full before or with us, uh, maybe stopping it. But uh, we're going to stop from time to time because we don't have time on this podcast to read it more than once. And we'll discuss it uh, as we go. So here we go. Uh, Gary, before you read for us, Immigrants in Our Own Land. Immigrants in Our Own Land. We're born with dreams in our hearts, looking for better days ahead. At the gates, we are given new papers and our old clothes are taken and we are given overalls like mechanics wear. We're given shots and doctors ask questions. Then we gather in another room where counselors orient us to the new land we will now live in. We take tests. Some of us were craftsmen in the old world, good with our hands and proud of our work. Others were good with their heads. They used common sense like scholars used glasses and books to reach the world. But most of us didn't finish high school. The old men who have lived here stare at us from deep, disturbed eyes, sulking, retreated. We pass them as they stand around idle, leaning on shovels and rakes or against walls. Our expectations are high in the old world. They talked about rehabilitation, about being able to finish school and learning an extra good trade. But right away, we are sent to work as dishwashers and to work in fields for three cents an hour. The administration says this is temporary. In Baca's memoir, uh, he describes his thoughts as he enters prison, and I'm going to quote the book. With a wave, he signaled one of the tower guards up on the main gate, and it slowly and begrudgingly creaked and squealed to the left, opening my new world. Maybe I could get some schooling and learn to read and write. Maybe I could learn heating and refrigeration to go with my plumbing trade. It was time to change. He's like the immigrant in the poem. Understanding the choices he's made in the past got him to this point, but hopeful he can still make better choices, choices that will change the direction of the rest of his life. If we notice the point of view in the first part of the poem, we see that it's in the first person plural, we. We are invited into this experience with him. All of us, whoever we are in this world, are born with dreams in our hearts. I mean, that's our common humanity. We're not different from this inmate. But Baca in the poem demonstrates that hope and dreams are what are lost in prison. And he will argue for why this is the case by going back to the metaphor of the immigrant. So we go about our business, blacks with blacks, poor whites with poor whites, Chicanos and Indians by themselves. The administration says this is right. No mixing of cultures. Let them stay apart like in the old neighborhoods we came from. We came here to get away from false promises, from dictators in our neighborhoods who wore blue suits and broke our doors down when they wanted and arrested us when they felt like swinging clubs and shooting guns as they please. But it's no different here. It's all concentrated. The doctors don't care. 
Our bodies decay. Our minds deteriorate. We learn nothing of value. Our lives don't get better. We go down quick. It's no different here. It's an unusual thing to say. No different from what? It's no different in that the causes that created the marginalization of the prisoner on the outside is not only still present in prison, but it's concentrated. We are taught in school, and this isn't necessarily untrue, but that we are a product of our decisions. But the truth of the matter is we're, that's only half true. Yes, we're products of our decisions, but those decisions are often created out of impossible choices. After Baca got to prison, he was targeted by an inmate who wanted to rape him, so he was advised that in order to survive, he would have to fight this man. He must attack him first before he was attacked. The problem is, if you attack an inmate, then you can't go to school because school's a privilege. In fact, you are thrown into a literal dark pit for 30 days. It's an impossible choice, but you have to make a decision, and it's not a morally simple decision. You're an immigrant into a culture of darkness. How does one survive the darkness without being consumed by it? And, you know, in Baca's memoir, he recounts a conversation he had with a, name, a man named Macaron. Uh, Macaron took Baca under his wing, taught him how to survive in this environment. Baca tells Macaron that, oh, I'm going to get my GED. Uh, but all this is messed up now because I have to fight this aggressor. And Macaron responds with these words. I was like you hoping for a better life, working to do right. But that time passed. I remember when it happened. I was standing in the front of the gates with the chain gang. We were going out to pick potatoes. Suddenly, I lost hope and I could never get it back. My soul broke. It died. That day, I became a criminal. That day, I had no more hope. Well, in the social sciences, that's what we do call downward assimilation. Uh, and for, unfortunately, this happens far too often to immigrant and uh, refugee communities all over the world, not just in the United States. Um, the metaphor works, and, and we can all imagine how this might happen. You know, for example, uh, an immigrant comes to America, to Europe, or anywhere with hope, but then can't get the good job because the degree isn't valid, or he or she can't speak the language, so they can't get any job, and they don't understand the health care system or the education system or the transportation system. You know, if the immigrant cannot find support within a community to help structure uh, their lives, there's a risk that they'll find themselves marginalized outside of uh, a functioning society. And this place in this new land is plagued with violence and crime and impossible choices and very much um, like the one you described Baca as having. In uh, Baca's case, as he's referencing the problems with inmates, he's also alluding to the many Chicano people in the southwest part of the United States who have also found themselves in this very cycle. And uh, the greatest of all is not that Baca is having his experience in prison, as bad as it is, but, but that these double binds are happening across the Southwest with people who are not immigrants. In fact, not only were they born here, but they are descendants of first Americans. I mean, it's a very powerful picture he's painting through the poem. Yeah, and I want to point out at this point in the poem, Baca changes from the first-person plural to the first person singular we're cut out as readers we're no longer invited in he excludes us from his experience at, from this point onward in the poem this is his personal experience alone notice how he compares his experience in prison to the streets of albuquerque 
we cannot miss the connection. My cell is crisscrossed with laundry lines. My t-shirt, boxer shorts, socks, and pants are drying. Just like it used to be in my neighborhood, from all the tenements, laundry hung window to window. Across the way, Joey is sticking his hands through the bars to hand Felipe a cigarette. Men are hollering back and forth, cell to cell, saying their sinks don't work, or somebody downstairs hollers angrily about a toilet overflowing, or that the heaters don't work. I ask Coyote next door to shoot me over a little more soap to finish my laundry. I look down and see new immigrants coming in, mattresses rolled up and on their shoulders, new haircuts and brogan boots, looking around, each with a dream in his heart, thinking they'll get a chance to change their lives. But in the end, some will just sit around talking about how good the old world was. Some of the younger ones will become gangsters. Some will die and others will go on living without a soul, a future, or a reason to live. Some will make it out of here with hate in their eyes, but so very few make it out of here as human as they came in. They leave wondering what good they are now as they look at their hands so long away from their tools, as they look at themselves so long gone from their families, so long gone from life itself. So many things have changed. Years later, uh, Jimmy Bakker returned to this prison, and ironically, he was there to shoot a movie about his life. But he describes the experience of going back as emotionally distressing. His emotions were stirred up as he re-experienced that whole loss of humanity. Quote, let me quote him, The old convict in me rose up full of hatred and rage. The thought of thousands of human beings whose souls were murdered here in the last hundred years, as if through a prison door peephole, I saw all the free people going about their lives on the other side while my place was again with the convicts. Anyone opening that door from the other side must die or be taken hostage or forced to understand our hatred, made to experience the insane brutality that is the convict's daily lot and that makes him, in turn, brutal and insane. You know, Malcolm X also spoke to that. Um, He spoke about many things, but specifically I'm reminded what he said about the psychological trauma produced just by the cages. And this is his quote. Any person who claims to have deep feeling for other human beings should think a long, long time before he votes to have other men kept behind bars caged. I'm not saying there shouldn't be prisons, but there shouldn't be bars. Behind bars, a man never reforms. In Baca's case, reform came through escape, not from prison, but from the bars. And that escape came through his imagination as he remembered his early years as a little child, but then through teaching himself to read. Learning to read would be Baca's savior. Part of his journey to prison involved being convicted by a court-appointed attorney that he should change his plea from innocent to guilty. On the same day that this happened, he was sitting in this jail in Yuma, Arizona, and we watched a booking clerk mock an older Chicano man because he was drunk. Her mockery, because this older man was superstitious, filled Baca with rage, and in retribution, he stole her college textbook just because. He took it back to his cell, not to read it, but to be mean and get revenge on her for what she'd done. He couldn't even read it at all. Baca knew his letters and sounds, but nothing beyond that. He was functionally illiterate. He could not put words together nor make them meaningful. That night, mostly because he had nothing to do, he spent the entire night just sounding out letters in this book, trying to remember how these things fit together and made words. It was slow and frustrating. 
But what he discovered was that when he did it, he opened up a world that he didn't know even existed. He could transplant himself out of this world and put himself into another existence. In this particular case, the author of the text uh, was a man by the name of William Wordsworth. The text was a simple story is about a man in a pond, and it made him remember his childhood because he had a pond in his own uh, country in a place called Estancia. Baca's experience that day with Wordsworth was a turning point for him. He knew that reading and writing was what separated the worlds. This, there was another world. And for him, books represented something that they, those other people, could use against him lawyers and judges they were things used to put him behind bars twist the truth twist his experience no one in his world knew how to read they didn't have books and the world he inhabited there were only two ways to learn things fighting with somebody or drinking with somebody <laughs> it's interesting uh, that Baca saw this as the dividing line and that he aspired to change worlds and you know, part of what was so demoralizing about his time in prison is that his opportunity to learn always seemed out of reach. And every time he'd go before the parole board to get into school, incredibly, he was rejected. And Baca eventually got thrown into solitary confinement, you know, not for killing anyone, but because he refused to work. And the, the reason he refused to work is because the system refused to allow him to learn to read. You know, but it goes deeper than that. Um Part of the reason he kept getting into trouble was that not only that he could not read, but he couldn't express himself clearly enough to defend himself with words. You know, words are power. My goodness, in the world of psychology, we talk about words and language create reality. Uh, you know, they can be used to build us or break us. And, and in his experience, uh, words were being used over and over again to tell him he was worthless and unredeemable. And, you know, to blame him for choices he did not want to have to make, to condemn him to isolation, that, that was the result. But in Baca's case, it was in that isolation cell that with the help of a stranger, he taught himself to read. A man named Harry had picked up his name during a Christmas mass where his church distributed a list of inmate names who had uh, no family and no one to write to them over the holidays. And Harry began a correspondence with Baca. Baca, eager to communicate with anyone, struggled for hours to try to read Harry's letters and then piece together a response. And, you know, it was a beginning to literacy, but it was also the beginning to self-expression. And it was opening a path to release rage and to communicate to himself and to others that he, was, he had worth and he had meaning in this world and that he could find it. Baca's story of redemption, it's long, it's painful, but eventually he served his full term. He was released. He was outside of prison, but inside his heart he was a convict, and he was still full of anger and rage. One night, not long after his release from prison, he was walking in Santa Fe, and he found himself in front of the St. Francis Cathedral. The church was full of people. The Mass was a special event. Uh, it was asking forgiveness from God for all the crimes against indigenous people committed in the name of the church. Baca walked in just to observe. He stayed for the entire service, and something again happened to him as he looked around. He began to forgive. Forgive his parents for what they had done to him. He began to forgive himself for what he had done to others. Forgive the world for how it had treated him. 
He felt like a baby being reborn, starting over. That same year, Louisiana State University published the book of poetry he had written in prison, Immigrants in Our Own Land. We read one poem from this collection, uh, and here are another, here's another one, two more really. One is his most famous poem, I'm offering you this poem. The other we'll read first is called The New Warden. I won't interrupt the reading this time. We'll read it straight. We'll start with the new warden in this poem. And remember, he's in prison when he writes this, but he imagines a perfect prison with a perfect warden. The warden at the prison of his imagination was not like the one that he knew, who was notoriously cruel and merciless. In his poem, it's the opposite. People have called this poem utopian, and maybe it is. Isn't that what visions always are supposed to be? But... In his case, wouldn't it be nice if somehow we could get closer to his vision? So let's read it. The New Warden. The New Warden. He sat in the cool morning. He had a handful of seeds in his palm. He sat there contemplating where he would plant them. A month later, he tore the kitchen down and planted apple seeds there. Some of the convicts asked him why. Apples, he said, is one of America's great traditional prides. Remember the famous ballad of Johnny Appleseed? Nobody had heard of it, so he set up a poetry workshop where the death house had been. The chair was burned in a great ceremony. Some of the Indian convicts performed ancient rituals for the souls of those executed in the past. He sold most of the bricks and built little ovens in the earth with the rest. The hospital was destroyed except for the one wing to keep the especially infirmed aged ones. And funny thing, no one was ever sick. The warden said something about freedom being the greatest cure for any and all ailments. He was right. The cell blocks were raised to the ground. Some of the steel was kept and a blacksmith shop went up. With the extra bricks, the warden purchased tents, farming implements, and bought a big yellow bus. The adjourning fields flowed rich with tomatoes, pumpkins, potatoes, corn, chili, alfalfa, cucumbers, From the nearby town of Florence and as far away as Las Cruces, people came to buy up loads and loads of vegetables. In one section of the compound, the artists painted Easter and Christmas and other holiday cards on paper previously used for disciplinary reports. The government even commissioned some of the convicts to design patriotic emblems. A little group of engineers, plumbers, electricians began building solar heating systems and sold them to elementary schools way under cost. Then some citizens grew interested. Some high school kids were invited to learn about it, and soon solar systems were being installed in the community. An agricultural program opened up. Unruly convicts were shipped out to another prison. After the first year, the new warden installed ballot boxes. A radio and a TV shop opened. Some of the convicts' sons and daughters came into prison to learn from their father's trades and talking with them about life. This led to several groups opening up sessions dealing with language, logic, and delving into past myths and customs. Blacks, Mexicanos, whites, all had so much to offer. They were invited to speak at the nearby university discussing what they found to be untouched by past historians. Each day, six groups of convicts went into the community working for the aged and infirmed. One old convict ended up marrying the governor's mother. (laughs) This was Mbaka's imagination as he sat in the polar opposite of this reality. But think about how he has learned to express a vision 
The writer of this poem is the same young man who could not defend himself with words to the point that he got himself thrown into solitary confinement three times. It's in the power of words that we create new visions, new realities, to imagine the what if, to envision a prison that does not destroy but redeems. I've saved my favorite Baca poem for last. This, the first time I encountered this poem, I was teaching 10th grade at Bolton High School, a rural community outside of Memphis, Tennessee, trying to teach my students about similes and metaphors. And we found Baca's work, and, and it was expressing the most sincere of human emotions. The bio next to the poem in the textbook was short. It mentioned that the poem was written by a young man while he was in prison, but it included a quote from Baca, and that quote moved me. It said this. I still have the old textbook, actually. I'm going to read it from there. I had to tell somebody that I was here. It's unthinkable to come to a universe, to live as a human being, and then to die and not have anyone ever know you were there. In the most unforsaken environment imaginable, Baca writes a poem about love. And I would like to say this about Baca that he's demonstrating very, very clearly here. When you can read and write, you enter a world of abstract thinking that you can't enter without being able to read and write. And so that whole thing you just discussed there was his abstraction of a perfect world, which you can't think of without the language skills he acquired. So I think that's an interesting psychological point. I am offering this poem to you since I have nothing else to give. Keep it like a warm coat. When winter comes to cover you, or like a pair of thick socks, the cold cannot bite through. I love you. I have nothing else to give you. So it is a pot full of yellow corn to warm your belly in winter. It is a scarf for your head to wear, over your hair to tie up around your face. I love you. Keep it. Treasure this as you would if you were lost, needing direction in the wilderness. Life becomes when mature. And in a corner of your drawer, tucked away like a cabin or a hogan in dense trees, come knocking, and I will answer, give you directions, and let you warm yourself by this fire, rest by this fire, and make you feel safe. I love you. It's all I have to give, and all anyone needs to give, and to go on living inside when the world outside no longer cares if you live or die. Remember, I love you. The power of this poem lies in its simplicity. It doesn't matter if you're behind bars in the most forsaken place on the planet. It doesn't matter who you are, what your past is, what your mistakes have been, how much money you have. You always have something to give. And that is your love. And as he says, it's all I have to give and all anyone needs to live and to go on living inside when the world outside no longer cares if you live or die. Remember... I love you. What a powerful life story with such a redemptive message to empower and inspire all of us to look outside ourselves. It's incredible. Uh, Next episode, we will continue our discussion of Baca's work. But instead of looking at his prison literature, we will examine uh, and discuss some of his most notable pieces written afterwards. And we'll discuss it in the larger context of his contribution to Chicano literature. Uh, there's so much more to discuss, and I, and I hope you'll join us uh, as we allow Jimmy Santiago Baca to inspire us. Um, as always, thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this discussion, please share this episode with a friend via text, 
email, Twitter, social media, or however you share things. Uh, also, if, if you have time, please scroll down to your podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and a review. Uh, if you're an instructor, visit our website for teaching support and ideas. If you'd like to connect with us, we're easy to find on email, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Remember, uh, when you share, we grow. Peace out. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.